Well, good morning. It is so exciting for me to finally be here to open God's Word with you. And I just want to begin by expressing what a humbling privilege it is to be called as one of the pastors here at Grace. And as we begin, I want to commit to you all, by God's grace, three things that are priorities for me as your new pastor. The first is that I desire to love you well and selflessly. That'll be through prayer. That'll be through faithful teaching of God's word, through encouragement and counsel, as well as even, as we'll see this morning, at times correction. Secondly, I endeavor to teach God's word to you faithfully and practically, that as we all sit under the truth of God's word, that we are transformed by its truth and the work of the Spirit in our lives. And the third thing that I pray that God allows me to do is to walk humbly with you in community. You see, there's not a single one of us that have arrived. I'm just gonna warn you, I'm going to disappoint your expectations sometimes. I'm going to sin sometimes. We're going to sometimes struggle with differences of opinion and perspective, but by God's grace, if we walk in humility, if we continue to press into the grace that God has given us, then I'm confident that God is going to grow us individually as well as as a church in unity and maturity. So if you have your Bibles, hopefully you're already there in Matthew chapter 18. We're going to begin in verse 15 this morning. And if you've been reading these verses as part of your reading plan, you may say, wow, Pastor Tim got a good one here to start off his time at Grace. This is, is not the easiest topic, but I will tell you I am thrilled that this is my first sermon as your pastor here at Grace. Because in my experience in ministry, if there is one thing that has the greatest potential to cause division and distraction from the gospel, it is Christians handling conflict poorly. You, you see, we can have all the theology that we want. We can know God's word backwards and forward, but if we don't allow that to infuse our interpersonal relationships with the same grace that God has given us, then in many ways, our, our spirituality is superficial and hollow. And so what we're going to see here in Matthew 18 is that Jesus is going to directly instruct us as to how to confront sin and resolve conflict. And I'm going to suggest to you this morning that if we can take these principles and put them into our relationships, it has the power to transform our marriages, and to transform our parenting relationships, our workplace, and our church relationships. Because as counterintuitive as it might seem, conflict is actually the gateway to greater unity. You see, sin is inevitable in this broken world. There's times where we're going to have conflict and sin against one another. But if, when that happens, we address it biblically and graciously, then we remove that barrier of sin and we go deeper and deeper into our understanding of what it means to live in community with one another. And so as we begin here in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you. What he's about to tell us is instruction for whenever we experience hurt, offense, and being sinned against. Now, hopefully as I say that, every single one of you say, I need to hear this message. Because this applies to every one of us. You might be a second grader out here. This applies to you. You might be a 90-year-old member of grace. This applies to you. 
and everybody else in between. Because we all have times where we are sinned against, where we are hurt. And what we have to guard against is following what feels natural. Because if you follow what your heart feels natural in that moment, I can almost guarantee you it will lead you into sin. And so as we come to Matthew 18, often this passage is described as church discipline. And there is some truth in that, but the thing I want to guard against is imagining that this process that Jesus outlines is somehow punitive. That somehow it's a witch trial or inquisition of some sort that's designed to shame and punish a person who has strayed into sin. You see, what I would encourage us to call this is corrective discipleship. That as we live in community, Jesus has been talking about what it means to be disciples. And we are in the midst here of the fourth discourse, the fourth teaching section. And just in the immediate context, Jesus has been describing how the good shepherd will pursue the wayward and wandering sheep. And what Jesus is now doing is giving us practical instruction as to what that looks like in our church community. And so as we begin, I want us to understand that when we are confronting sin, God is calling us to speak the truth in love. I'm sorry, can we take it back one? There we go. As we help one another recognize and overcome sin. Because when we do this, this preserves unity and fosters maturity. Now, before I go any further, I want to let you know there are some copies of my outline out here in the foyer on the table. If you didn't grab one on the way in, if you want one, you're welcome to it. Sometimes there's a lot of content, and this particular message is certainly true of that. That way you don't have to hurt your hand trying to scribble that quickly. Uh, if that's helpful, I encourage you to pick up one of those. But we speak the truth. We don't shy away. We don't treat conflict passively, but we do it in love. That is, we are not self-righteously condemning someone for their sin, but proactively confronting them because of it. And underlying all of this is a core theology of sin that says sin is so pervasive and so dangerous that we must not treat it lightly. We must urgently and redemptively address it that we might preserve that brother and preserve the unity in the church. I fear many times in our Christian churches we don't take sin seriously enough. It's almost like if you were to go to the doctor and the doctor would sit down across from you and say, I have some bad news for you. You have cancer. And you said, oh, okay, well, I'm going to take some vitamins and I'm going to get some rest and I'm going to start exercising more and I think that's probably going to take care of it. You would be foolish if that was your approach, right? No, you would say, doctor, we need to do everything we can, do whatever aggressive treatment we need to, to eradicate this cancer. And that is what I believe Jesus is calling us to do when we have to address sin within community, that we would urgently and redemptively address it with one another. Now, there's five principles here that I believe we can glean from this text as well as from the broader canon of Scripture as to how we do this. This is a biblical blueprint for how to respond when you've been hurt, offended, and sinned against. And so I would encourage you to jot this down and rehearse it over and over again, because this all sounds good in theory until you actually get sinned against, right? And then it's like all those principles go out the window and all you wanna do is be vindicated or get revenge or get something off your chest. 
So the very first thing we're going to see is not technically in our passage, but it's something that Jesus has already shown us in Matthew chapter 7, verse 5. And that is that we have to start humbly. Before we go to address sin in someone else's heart, we have to first of all address the sin in our own heart. Before we can take the speck out of someone else's eye, we need to take to take the log out of our own eye. And so as we begin humbly, we start by prayerfully considering our own contribution to the conflict and our attitude toward the person who sinned. That means your motivation when you go to address someone who has hurt you or sinned against you can't be just to set them straight. Can't be, I just need to get this off my chest. No, you have to stop and say, what has been my contribution to this conflict? How have I sinned either in response to what they have done or as a precursor to what they have done to me? And as you prayerfully consider this, you have to search your heart because in the emotion of the moment, you are going to feel right. You are going to feel justified for whatever it is that you've done or thought. But God, by his grace and through the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, has the power to pierce through your heart to convict you and humble you so that when it does come time for you to address that sin in the other person's life, you do so from a posture of humility and with the dependence upon God's grace. And that is, you are not self-righteously condemning the person, but rather coming to them as a fellow sinner who is saved by grace. Can I just tell you that it's a warning sign if you feel eager to go confront someone? That ought to be a red flag if you're like, I just can't wait to address this. Instead, we need to humbly approach it carefully. Let me give you some practical suggestions as to what that might look like. First of all, be suspicious of yourself. Your heart is deceitful. You can't trust your emotions. You can't trust what feels right to you. So immediately be suspicious of those strong impulses that come when you've been sinned against. Recognize the limits of your understanding and the dangers of your deceitful heart. You see, we think that we see the whole picture. We think that we have clarity, but so often we are blinded by the limitations of our perspective or the deceitful desires of our heart. Secondly, beware. You don't have the whole picture, even if you think you do. You see, often what we do is we take the facts and we fill in the gaps, and we tell stories, often unhelpful stories, that attribute motive that explain what someone must have been thinking when they were doing something, assuming that we know what it is that's going on in their heart. So be careful of those unhelpful stories that actually are your interpretation of the facts. And third, be ready to apologize for the sin that God reveals in your heart. You see, we don't just do this as a precursory step so that we can finally get to what we want to do. No, we stand ready to recognize that it may very well be the fault here is me. And that instead of going to confront them, I need to go in confession for the ways that I've judged them or jumped to conclusions. So we start by being humble, addressing the sin in our own heart. Secondly, we do so urgently. It says, if your brother sins against you, go. Now I want to talk to you who are conflict avoiders this morning. You know who you are. Maybe you grew up in a family in which conflict was scary or difficult. 
Maybe you're somebody who is afraid that somebody's going to be angry or upset with you if you deal with conflict. And so rather than proactively addressing conflict, you retreat. You, you just say, oh, it's, it's not that big of a deal. And as a result, that conflict begins to fester in your heart. There's a seed of bitterness that gets planted that grows into anger and divided relationships and even a hardened heart. And so when conflict arises, you are to quickly work to resolve the issue so that God is honored and unity is preserved. I'm reminded of what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, where he says, if you are presenting your gift at the altar and you remember that your brother has something against you, that there's some broken relationship that's there, leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled. That is, your reconciled relationship is more important than your public worship because unless you are rightly related to your brother, you cannot also be rightly related to God. And so you need to not wait because you know what happens, right? God prompts your heart to address an issue or an offense that has come up, but you delay, and then it's been a week or two weeks, and you're like, well, now it would actually be kind of weird for me to go back and bring it up, but as a result, it never gets addressed, and that often is corrosive for you spiritually and dangerous for the other person spiritually, and so God is calling you to be proactive, not in a harsh and condemning way, but you go to the person directly and individually and address the sin, not with your offense as the focus, but with God's word. You sit down with them and show them what you've seen and experienced and how that squares with the truth of God's word. But many times what prevents us from doing this, if we're honest, is fear. Let me suggest a few things that we might be afraid of. We fear losing the relationship. I'd rather just cover it over and pretend like everything's okay because if I address this, they might get angry with me. We're afraid of being the object of anger. You know, nobody really likes to be confronted. We've all had some bad experience where someone responds in a defensive or angry way. Third, maybe we're afraid of being hurtful. What if I trip over my words or say it the wrong way? That relationship might be irreparably broken because I just didn't handle it the way I wished I would have or perceived as being unkind or unloving. You see, because the world tells us the most loving thing we can do is to be tolerant, whereas the Bible tells us the most loving thing we can be is redemptive. And therefore, we go to that person. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 3 actually tells us that if we go to our brother and show him his fault, we love him. But if we don't, we're actually demonstrating that we hate them. So first of all, be humble in examining yourself. Secondly, be proactive in directly addressing it with the person Third, go privately. Jesus says here in verse 15, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Listen carefully. When you have sin, been sinned against, hurt, or offended, don't go talk to someone else. Don't go tell a friend. Don't go text a neighbor. Don't go talk to your pastor. Go to the person. I'm convinced that if we followed this one simple principle, 90% of the conflict would be nipped in the bud right where it was. Now, don't get me wrong. I understand there are times where you need to go and seek counsel, where you need to ask for prayer before you address a difficult situation. 
But in my experience, the vast majority of time, when somebody wants to talk about a hurt or offense that they've experienced, it's not because they actually want counsel. It's because they want to feel vindicated. They want to feel agreed with, and they want to be right. And when that happens, gossip begins to spread. And so rather than dealing with it in a small way, in a direct way, others are drawn into the conflict. And so the principle that we see here from Jesus is that we are called to keep the circle as small as possible for as long as possible that the church might be unified. Now this is especially important to me because in a previous church I was a part of an elder board in which one of our elders had an offense. He was hurt and upset by the way that the elders had handled a particular situation. But rather than coming to us to work it through and address that concern, he began to withdraw and began to talk among the church. And soon others began to take up his offense even though they were only hearing one side of the story. As you would imagine, soon confusion and division had permeated the church. And ultimately this elder left with a number of families to go start his own work that would be more pure and fitting with what he was looking for. You see, if only we had kept that circle small and dealt with conflict directly the way Jesus intended, we would have been able to resolve it redemptively. And so not only do we go to them directly, but we also go personally. Can I just ask you, don't send it in a text. Don't put some cryptic post on Facebook. Don't send an anonymous letter, please. All right? That is not helpful. Go sit down across from the person face to face. Listen. Ask good questions. Seek to understand. One author that I read put it so memorably, they said, when you go to the other person, go curious rather than furious. Don't let your emotion take the lead, but rather go with an understanding that says, I need to understand where they're coming from that I might show them the truth of God's word. And then, if they listen to you, you have won that brother. And so the fourth thing that we see here is that we are to go graciously or redemptively. This speaks to our goal in confronting the sin and offense. You don't go in order to prove that you are right. You go in order to be reconciled. And so our confrontation should be marked by kindness with a posture of forgiveness Our goal is not to win the argument, but to win the brother. That's what he says here at the end of verse 15. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. You've won him back. You've turned him from sin. Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 tells us that when we confront sin, we are to do so gently. Not with self-righteous condemnation, but with gracious kindness that addresses it in the same posture with which we have received God's grace and kindness. And you may be tempted to just let them have it, right? To just tell them off. But can I remind you what Romans chapter 2, verse 1 tells us? Do you not know that it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance? And so we go to them personally and gently, seeking that they would turn from their sin. And I just want to encourage you Sometimes you're going to be on the receiving end of this, where someone comes to you and says, hey, we need to have a conversation. And your impulse in that moment, you need to know this, is going to be to be defensive, to argue why you're right, 
to explain why you've been misunderstood. Can I encourage you to listen humbly, knowing that this brother or sister is not bringing this to your attention in order to shame you or punish you, but because they love you. And if you will listen well and respond with humility, you will grow in maturity and the church will grow in unity. But the sad reality is that doesn't always happen. Verse 16, Jesus says, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church. The final thing that I want us to notice here is that we are to confront sin communally. We first of all address it privately, keeping the circle as small as possible for as long as possible. But if that person refuses to listen, then we bring two or three others along. I believe typically that's going to involve some of the church leaderships and the elders because they have authority and oversight within the church. And they go to the other person, not in order to assist in prosecuting the case, but to go as witnesses to the discussions and the attempts to bring reconciliation and resolution. It's a testimony to the seriousness of sin, but it's also a safeguard to make sure that if I, as the one confronting, have actually overreacted or ungraciously judged, that they are there to hold me accountable as much as they are to hold the other person accountable. Now, I want us to note here, because I've had conversations with church leaders at times, where they say, if the person doesn't respond to a private, individual conversation, what makes us think that as we escalate the conflict, if it were, that they're going to respond more humbly? Here's where I want to remind ourselves that our confidence is not in our strategy, but in the work of the Holy Spirit. That all of this process is saturated with prayer. That God in his grace would turn the person from their sin and draw them back to himself. And if they continue to refuse, verse 17 tells us that we need to go then and tell it to the church. Now there's a lot of misunderstanding here as to why that would be. But what is this to accomplish? Well, when we bring it then to the church, this is public discipline. We're going to go very quickly through this because there's a lot here in our text, but I think it's important for us to understand because in this broken world, the likelihood is that during our time together as a church family, we're going to have to walk this road. So we need to understand before it ever comes, what is the purpose of it? First of all, it is to pursue the wandering. Up to this point, the pastoral appeal has been individually and in a small group. But now we are strengthening the pastoral appeal by calling others to engage in it as well, that the entire church community is enlisted to join in prayer and pursuit of the sheep who has gone astray. It's so important for us to understand this is not punitive. This is not to shame or embarrass the person, but rather to say that this sin is so significant and the danger is so urgent that we are all called to pursue the wayward sheep in hopes that they would repent and return home. But not only is it intended to pursue the wandering, it is also intended to protect the purity of God's people. You see, if someone is a part of our church family and they are a member, we have affirmed that they are a believer based on the testimony of their faith. But if they are responding and living in a way that is unrepentant and sinful, then we as holy people are called to disassociate ourselves from someone who is living in willful and unrepentant sin. It's a little bit like as a parent, if I set certain rules, I'm called to enforce them. One of the challenges that we have in our house is our kids love to 
bounce the basketball in the house. And it drives me crazy because our family's already loud. And as you would imagine, bouncing the basketball only makes it louder. Now, if I tell them you're not allowed to bounce the basketball in the house, and then they start bouncing it and I don't do anything, what have I actually done? I've actually implicitly and silently endorsed their sinful behavior. I've given them permission to defy my authority and live according to what seems right to them. That's why it's important for us to protect the purity of God's people by consistently calling every one of us to a high standard. Third, it also warns us against the deceitfulness of sin. If ever you've watched someone walk through a process in which their heart becomes hard and they wander in waywardness, you know what I'm about to say. It never ceases to amaze me how people are willing to throw away so much for so little. How they're willing to throw away their family, throw away their relationships, throw away their reputation for a moment of pleasure for just a glimpse of power or control. And as we follow this process of confronting sin in the hearts of others, Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 warns us that we need to take heed that we ourselves don't fall into sin. Because the truth is, every one of us are in danger of straying from the truth and wandering from grace. And so whenever we address sin in the heart of someone else, we need to remind ourselves but by God's grace, that could be me. Fourth, this public discipline is also intended to awaken the sinner to the seriousness of their sin. Because Jesus says, if he refuses then, in verse 17, to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That is, you are to treat him as an outsider. Now, it's true that Jesus demonstrated grace and kindness to Gentiles and tax collectors, but the whole point here is that you are to treat them as someone who is no longer to be considered as a believer. Now, let me again be clear. This doesn't mean that we ostracize them, but rather that we evangelize them. Because, you see, biblically speaking, true believers repent when they sin. And so if, when they are confronted with their sin, if when they are called to be accountable, they refuse to repent, then the church comes to the point where they say, just as we affirmed the validity of their salvation in their initial membership, so we now stand publicly and say, based on their behavior, the fruit of their life, we no longer can make that affirmation. That doesn't mean we know with confidence that the person isn't a Christian, but rather that their behavior is decidedly unchristian. And so our prayer is that the seriousness of this declaration would awaken the person to the reality that perhaps someday when they stand before God in judgment, that they will actually be an outsider, that they will be told, depart from me, I never knew you. But even in this, the whole purpose is redemptive and restorative. And that if at any point in the process the believer repents, then we rejoice that the lost sheep has come home just as the Father and his angels do. Well, as we continue here then in verse 18, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now this is a powerful verse that I wish we had more time to unpack. What I want you to understand is that this is the same language that Jesus had used of Peter. That there was an, an authoritative declaration as to what God permits and forbids that would be entrusted not just to the leadership, 
but to the church in general. So that as the church declares God's will on a matter, to the extent that it reflects the truth of God's word, it has binding authority here on earth, and that there is no higher court of appeal to which we might turn. And so Jesus continues then in verse 19, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Here Jesus is talking about the power of prayer. It may very well be that he's alluding to the importance of those two or three witnesses that come together to confirm the the issue of sin in someone's life. But I believe it also can be applied more broadly, that there is a power in prayer always, but especially when we gather in small groups. That we aren't just praying individually, but communally. That we are sharing one another's burdens. That we are petitioning God in a particular matter. And I have observed, and I pray that God continues to cultivate here at Grace, that we be a church of prayer. Not just casually, not just intermittently, but persistently and intentionally. Praying for revival in our hearts and in our community. Praying for the discipleship of our children and our families and our church family. Praying for the lost in our community and beyond that they might know Christ that as we bind our hearts together and entreat God based upon his will, that he might transform us and also do his kingdom work through us. Now we come to the final section in our passage, which is actually the longest section of our passage, in which Peter then comes up to Jesus and says to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Now, Peter apparently is listing what Jesus has said about how to handle it when someone has sinned against you and you confront them. And in the rabbinic teaching of those days, they taught that if someone had sinned against you three times and you forgave them three times, then at that point, your responsibility was done. On that fourth time, you could refuse to forgive them on the basis of their persistent sin against you. And so Peter, apparently desiring to be magnanimous, says as many as seven times, If I've forgiven them seven times at that point, then can I withhold the forgiveness that they're asking for? But Jesus said to him in verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now the point here from Jesus is not, no, Peter, your number was too low, but rather that your theology is too poor. You see, your your forgiveness is to be without limit. That the magnitude with which God has forgiven you is calling you then to demonstrate unconditional and unlimited forgiveness to those who forgive, who sin against you. And now Jesus is going to tell us a memorable and powerful parable, and it's this that we're going to focus our attention on with the time that we have remaining. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents let's pause there for a moment in that culture ten thousand was the largest number that they would typically use and talents was the largest measure of money that they would typically use and so essentially we're not to understand this as like a literal figure but rather as much money as much debt as you could ever possibly imagine that's what this slave owed to the master If you were to work it out in their currency, it would have been about 150,000 years of wages. If you can wrap your mind around that. That's what this servant owed. 
And so the point here is that the magnitude of his debt was astonishing. And in verse 25 it says, And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all he had, and payment to be made. Now his imprisonment was not actually to repay the whole debt because there was no feasible possibility that that would ever happen. But rather because this servant, this slave, had been delinquent in his service of the master, he was to be punished along with his family for the rest of his life. Now the servant in desperation in verse 26 fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. You see, that's ridiculous. There's no way if he had 150,000 years that he could have paid it back. But the servant was still focused on his ability and his intentions. And so he goes before the master insisting on his sufficiency. But notice what verse 27 says, and out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. You see, the master unconditionally and without hesitation forgives him an astonishing debt, not because of the man's good intentions, but because of his desperate need and situation. The master in his grace extends forgiveness that the man did not earn and did not deserve. This man, suddenly freed from a debt that he could have never repaid, goes from this place in verse 28. And when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay me what you owe. This ought to be shocking to us as we tell this story. This servant who had just been demonstrated such grace goes out and demonstrates his own character to be greedy and grasping. He lays hands on a man who owed him about three months wages. And this man who had not been given what he deserved by the king goes to demand what he felt like he deserved from a fellow servant. And when the man is confronted with his debt, he fell down in verse 29 and pleaded with him saying, have patience with me and I'll pay you. Now that ought to sound familiar. Do you know why? Because it's almost word for word what the first servant had pled with the king but the response of the first servant is exactly opposite of what the king had demonstrated. Verse 30, he refused, and he went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now, Jesus uses this parable, and it ought to be shocking and upsetting for us. It ought to infuriate us that this man who had been demonstrated such grace would be so petty and unforgiving and unrighteous in his relationship with a fellow servant. And this is the point where just like when Nathan was addressing David after his adultery with Bathsheba, that the text turns its finger to our heart and says, you are the man. You see, there is not one of us that has not fallen into this same trap, that we receive unmerited grace from God Forgiveness that we could never earn or deserve. Pardon from a debt that we could never pay. And then we go and self-righteously condemn another. We act as if we were the king and we were the judge, refusing to extend even a shred of the grace that God has given to us, to others in our relationships. 
Verse 31, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and you, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. And let's get to where this really comes down practically in our lives. As we talk about the issue of forgiveness, I can almost guarantee every one of you have some relationship, some experience, some past hurt or unresolved conflict that as we address it, it begins to pull the scab off the wound. And it makes you want to push it away makes you want to just wish that we would close up the service now so we can go from this place. But God is putting his finger on a truth that every one of us need to hear, that as forgiven people, we are called to be forgiving people. That we, as those who have experienced God's grace, are called to extend that same grace to others. And that if we refuse to do so, it suggests something about our true spiritual state. As forgiven people, God calls us to forgive others just as he has forgiven us. And so although we don't have much time as we wrap up here, I want us to understand that this is an incredibly practical and important truth. Not just that we confront sin when others sin against us, but that we forgive it when they repent. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 puts it this way. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's why Jesus in the Lord's Prayer teaches us to pray, and Father, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. When we are tempted to withhold forgiveness and to harbor bitterness, we are suffering from gospel amnesia, forgetting what God has forgiven us. And so in just the moments we have remaining, I want to outline five principles of what it means to forgive others as God has forgiven us. This outlines a pattern that I pray that as we close our time then together, that you would reflect on and respond to. First of all, the forgiveness that God has given to us is graciously offered. Because I know what you might be thinking. But that person doesn't deserve to be forgiven with the way they hurt me. That person just has injured me so badly they deserve to pay and be punished and so did you but god in his grace chose not to give you what you deserved god doesn't forgive anyone who is deserving he only forgives the undeserving and so as we reflect on the fact that god has forgiven the unforgivable in us we are then called to do the same because you will never ever be called to forgive someone else for more than god has already forgiven you so when you truly consider the magnitude of your debt, it will put the sin of others against you in proper perspective. Therefore, our motive for forgiveness is love, and we extend forgiveness to the undeserving. That means we don't require them to do penance or to prove their worth, but rather we forgive them graciously and humbly. Secondly, forgiveness is costly. Sometimes we romanticize and idealize forgiveness, right? To where we feel like, oh, then we're just going to be able to hug and it's going to be warm, fuzzy feelings and everybody's just going to be happy. No, if you've ever had to really walk a road of forgiveness, you know it is excruciatingly 
painful. It is hard. Because someone has incurred a debt against you and forgiveness means I absorb it rather than demanding it of you. I relationally make a way for our relationship to be restored by taking the punishment and penalty of your sin and absorbing it myself. And in the moments where you might be tempted to be bitter about that fact, I encourage you to remember that that's exactly what Jesus did for you. He took the punishment that you deserve. The wrath of God was poured out on his only son that you might be reconciled to him. Third, it is conditioned on repentance. That is, we go to someone and we confront their sin. We lovingly extend forgiveness to them. But until God does a work in their life and they come to repentance, forgiveness and all that it entails cannot ultimately result in the reconciliation of that relationship. Fourth, we understand that forgiveness is not a feeling, but rather a commitment. We, we don't wait until we feel good feelings toward that person, but rather we release them from their guilt and move toward them relationally, committing to not treat them as their sins deserve and not holding their sins against them. Ken Sandy has some really helpful uh, commitments of forgiveness in his book, The Peacemaker. These are the four. First of all, I will not dwell on this incident. I won't turn it over and over again in my mind and allow it to take root in my heart. Secondly, I will not bring up this incident again and use it against you. I'm not going to get historical the next time we have a conflict. Third, I will not talk to others about this incident, allowing gossip to divide the church and expand the circle. Fourth, I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship, which leads us to the final principle of forgiveness, and that is reconciliation. You see, forgiveness is not just some judicial pardon in which I say, I release you from your guilt, but I don't ever want to have anything to do with you ever again. No, forgiveness means that we have removed that barrier of sin so that our relationship might be restored. Because can you imagine if God said, I forgive you of all of your sins, but I don't want to have a relationship with you? Would that be good news? No, it wouldn't. And so in the same way, it breaks my heart when I see people who claim that they have forgiven each other begin attending different churches, refusing to talk to one another, saying that they just need to go their separate ways. That is not reconciliation, that's division. And so as we conclude our time, Jesus has given us some rich, practical, pastoral truths to put into practice. And maybe this morning God has convicted you about a conflict that you need to address biblically, urgently, and redemptively. I'd encourage you to begin in your own heart to make sure that you are beginning with a posture of grace. Or maybe he's exposed some unforgiveness that you've been harboring, some bitterness that you've been nursing in your heart because it feels so right and justified. As we sing these final songs, would you just allow the grace of God to wash over you, to remind you that you have been forgiven an unimaginable debt, and then urgently go to that person to pursue forgiveness and reconciliation. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. For we paid a debt that we could never pay. And it was only our need that we brought to you, and it was only your grace that you extended to us. Because your justice was poured out on your son, your mercy overflowed to us. So God, I pray that this wouldn't just be theoretical or theological in our lives, but that it would infuse our relationships 
that it would saturate our communication, that it would ease the friction that inevitably comes as we live in community. God, may you unite our church family in unity. May you grow us individually in maturity as we take these truths and put them into practice. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.